Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you, team, for helping us remember all that has been provided for us through faith in Christ, the grace that is ours in Christ, uh, that, that song that we just finished singing, All Glory Be to Christ, He is Worthy of Our Praise, uh, links very beautifully with the last song we sing prior to that, At the Cross Justice Was Supplied. Christ hung on the cross and made perfect payment with His blood so that we might know freedom from sin. Freedom from its penalty and freedom from its power. And that's why we sing. That's why all glory is due to Christ. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter. We'll resume preaching our way through this book, 2 Peter. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Gerald. I'm one of the elders here at Grace. And it is my privilege to preach this morning and to unpack the next few verses. We'll be looking particularly at verses 5 through 9 this morning. And as you're turning to 2 Peter, if you need a Bible, just put your hand up. We have some Bibles we'd love to make available. Ushers, will you please bring two Bibles? I have one up here in the front row and one in the middle. We'll get those Bibles to you. As, uh, as you're turning to 2 Peter, I want you to remember, if you were here last week, Randy Gruendijk taught on verses 3 and 4, and he taught about the knowledge of God. His sermon title was Knowing God. And he told us that knowing Jesus and his promises is in total the knowledge of God. And as we're thinking about this knowledge of God, I've titled this sermon as Stewarding Our Knowledge of God. Peter wants us to think about what it means to faithfully steward this knowledge. So with this in mind, let me ask you this question. Do you know any of those people who no matter what subject you're talking about always seem to know more about it than you do? And they're not ashamed to let you know that, right? They know a lot of trivia. They know facts. They know figures. They, they try to wow you and astound you with all that they know. But they do it in a way that's rather off-putting, right? They do it like a jerk, right? It seems like everything they know, they know so that they can look better than you and you can look foolish, right? You can look stupid. And, and you look at them in those conversations and you go, I'm marveling a little bit right now at what you know, but if you would just steward that knowledge a little more faithfully in a little better way, it might actually be a benefit to me. But right now, the way you're stewarding this knowledge isn't helping me out at all. It seems to be all about you. Well, Peter says here in 2 Peter that there's a way that we steward our knowledge of God too. And we are called, as Christians, people who know God, to steward this knowledge in a way that's faithful, to steward this knowledge in a way that helps others, that points others to Christ. So today I've got one simple point for you that Peter, it's the burden of Peter in these few verses, verses 5 through 9, so it's my burden for us and for this congregation that we understand it. And that burden is this. If you're a note taker, write this down. This will be the one point I want you to leave with today. Those who know God must work hard to live godly lives. Those who know God must work hard to live godly lives. And as you think about this sentence, there's a couple of ways that we could fall into a ditch, either to the right or to the left, right? And we're going we're gonna to try not to hit either of those ditches, but we want to unpack this tension that exists between being a people who are saved by grace and being a people who work hard to allow that grace to flow through us. So my burden today is that we understand what it is to live a godly life. My burden is that we understand how to live a godly life. And my burden is that we will understand why we should be cared caring for, and striving to live a godly life. So what is a godly life? How do I live a godly life? And why should I live a godly life? So we're going to begin reading at 2 Peter 1, verse 3. And before we do, I'd like us to pause and pray. Father, we look to you now. We thank you that you have made everything necessary for life and godliness available to us. And we pray now that as we open and read your word and as we seek to understand these precious promises that you've preserved for us through the ministry of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would send forth your Spirit to enable these words to fall on our hearts through our ears as the words of truth. We pray that we would be transformed by them. And we pray that, Lord, all of this would bring you much glory as we bear fruit. So we look to you, we depend on you, 
We stand in you because you have given us grace. And it's in this grace that we stand that we, we humbly ask for knowledge and that that knowledge of you would bear fruit and bring you much glory. We ask these blessings now in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading from 2 Peter chapter 1, I'll begin again at verse 3 and we'll read verses 3 through 9. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us the precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Those who know God must work hard to live a godly life. Knowledge of God is what's on Peter's mind. Did you hear him repeatedly say the word knowledge? This knowledge of God in these few verses. That's what's on his mind. And he says that we are to steward this knowledge in a way. We're to, we're to make every effort to add some things in our faith to this knowledge in order to bear fruit. So what is a godly life? How, if we must work hard to live a godly life, we must need to know what it is that we're striving toward, right? What is a godly life? Well, a godly life is a life in which your faith works hard to grow in holiness. We were made in the image of Jesus, in the image of God, the Creator, and the fall, because of sin, that image has been marred. It has been distorted, tainted. But in the redemption, in Jesus, as he makes us alive together with him through faith, he is restoring this image in us. And this image of God, God is one whose character is of the utmost perfection. His standard for life and and, and health on this earth is holiness. So a godly life is is a life that imitates God in his character and strives toward holiness. So that's what a godly life is. Look with me at verse 5. He says here in verse 5, supplement your faith. Faith is the prerequisite to living a godly life. You know from the scriptures and even from the songs we sang this morning that apart from faith, it's impossible to please God. Apart from faith, we are dead in our trespasses. We are dead in our sins. But God in his grace and in his mercy made us alive together with Christ through faith. We have life through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's a gift. It's not of works that anyone should boast, right? God sovereignly gifts us life. Randy said it this way. He says, knowledge of God is a privileged and imperial gift. That's what Peter says here in verses three and four. So a godly life then is one that starts with faith. Apart from faith, a godly life can't be lived. But in faith, now he says we are to add some things to this. Those who know God must work hard to live godly lives. What's a godly life? A godly life is one that imitates God's character, his moral excellence. So how do I live this godly life? Peter exhorts us here in verse 5. He says, supplement your faith. That's the way the ESV reads it. He says, for this very reason, verse 5, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. I think the ESV translators, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I I think they did us a little bit of a disservice here. I think what's more faithful translation of the Greek is found in the New American Standard, which says this. In your faith, applying all diligence, supply moral excellence. 
See, the, the NASB helps us understand that these things on this list that we are to add to our faith or that we are to exhibit in our lives as, a, as an, uh, a striving toward living a godly life, all of these flow from faith. They're impossible to display apart from faith, but because of faith, we are made alive in Christ. Along with that life in Christ comes the indwelling Holy Spirit. We are now, by the power of the Spirit, enabled to display God's character. And you'll notice here the first list, the first thing that we are to um, apply in our faith is virtue. This is the same word here that's translated excellence in verse 3, talking of God, him who called us to his own glory and excellence. It's, it's the same word here, this virtue and this excellence. So we are called to imitate God in his moral excellence. Now, the Greeks of this day used this word as a bucket term to contain every desirable character quality. So what Peter is saying here is we are to take and express our faith then by making every effort to display moral excellence. Christians, people who know God, are to steward that knowledge of God by imitating his character. And primarily, we are to step into and walk in ways that display his character to the watching world. We are to be a people who are morally excellent. And Peter words this in about as strong a way as he can, because the word that's translated in the ESV as supplement, or in the NASB as supply, that's, that's a command. It's an imperative verb. This is not an option. This is not something to be considered and to get around to when you have time. This is something that Peter wants his readers and that God through Peter wants us as Christians to know. We are to do these things. We must supply these things in our faith. And we're to do this as partakers of the divine nature. Look at verse 4. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We're to display this godly nature in our human bodies. So there's a divine partnership that happens here for the Christian, for those who know God, where we actually do things in our human bodies that can only be done through divine power. There's a divine partnership that's happening here between God and his child. And this is an intentional list. It's an intentional list that starts with faith, as I mentioned, because faith is the prerequisite. These things cannot be added to your life, cannot be displayed in your life. God's character can't be imitated apart from faith because those apart from faith are dead. And it's a, it's a list that is driving from that, starting with moral excellence, starting with imitating God in his character, his perfect holy character, and it progresses its way toward love. Think with me for a minute. As Jesus walked this earth, as it's recorded in the Gospels, he asked somebody, what is the first and greatest commandment? Do you remember, do you remember the answer? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is love it, like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So the Christian life is driving toward love. True love. And the problem with that is that in the fall, love, the affections of the heart, which were designed by God to be utmost primarily focused on Him, in sin, the affections of the heart are turned inward on itself. So now what Peter is exhorting his readers and us to do is to live a life, to steward our faith in such a way that adds these qualities to our lives, beginning with moral excellence and striving toward and being completed then in true Christ-like love. Love that stewards everything it has and everything that it is, not for its own exaltation, but for the good of others, to the glory of God. So let's look for a minute at this list. This list that Peter says, in our faith we are to supply. In other words, in our faith, using faith, allowing faith to flow through us, we're supposed to live in these ways. Virtue, that's, as I mentioned, moral excellence. That contains in it sexual purity, ethical purity, honesty. Everything that you think of when you think about 
someone being a good and an honest person that's virtuous, that lives their life in a way that honors God and reflects the character of God is contained in this idea of virtue or moral excellence. We're to add to our virtue knowledge. Knowledge of God, knowledge of His will. How do we gain that? We gain that through the disciplines that we preached our way through this summer, right? We gain that through knowledge of the Word. It's the written form of God's revelation to us. We gain that through prayer, through fellowship, through service, and on and on and on. So we're to add knowledge. Knowledge of who God is, knowledge of His will, and we're to live according to it. We're to add to our knowledge self-control. Self-control, I think, is one that encapsulates all of these things because escaping the corruption that is in the world through sinful desire is a hard thing to do. We know the corruption of the world and the pull that it has on our hearts and on our minds. We know the sinful desires that are still alive in us even though we are alive in Christ. We know that Paul talks about it as the old man who needs to be taken off and discarded like a garment and the new man who is to be put on by faith in Christ. We're to live in a way that's radically different from how we lived before we were in Christ. Self-control is key to that. We need to learn to say no to our sinful desires. And sometimes sinful desire, a desire is a good desire, a godly desire, but it becomes sinful when we want it on our timetable rather than God's timetable. So self-control can mean just stewarding a good and a godly desire according to God's timing and not ours. We're to add to self-control steadfastness perseverance, staying the course, because escaping the corruption that is in the world is a long obedience in the same direction. It's an arduous task. It takes time. And we can become tired, we can become weary, and we need steadfastness in order to stay with our hand to the plow following the Lord Jesus Christ as He works out our salvation in our lives. Steadfastness. We can't quit when it gets hard. We must remain and abide. We're to add to our steadfastness godliness. Our heart must beat for the thing that God's heart beats for. The things that God loves, we are to love. The things that God hates, we are to hate. And we're to steward our knowledge of God in a way that displays His character in godliness. Peter says we're to add to our godliness brotherly affection. That's loving our siblings in Christ. It's the people around you here in this church. It's the people that you know who are in Christ in other churches. It's the loving of the brotherhood, the fellowship, which can be hard at times because even though we stand on level ground at the foot of the cross, even though we are God's chosen children, we have differences that need to be worked through, right? That need to be celebrated and um, augmented, that need to be incorporated into our fellowship. We don't need to be further segregated. We need to be integrated with one another and embracing one another's differences and growing because of the differences and the strengths that you bring that fill in my weaknesses and vice versa. We're to fill that up with brotherly affection. And then we are to add to our brotherly affection love. For God is love. And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. So this love, this brotherly affection that we have for one another within the church is to flow outside the walls of the church toward the world who is putting a finger up to God and running away from him in their rebellion, in their death. We are to love the world enough to move toward them and to proclaim the excellencies of God, living a life of moral excellence before them in a way that makes them scratch their head and say, what is up with you the way you live? We're to live in such a way that only makes sense if Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection actually happened. That's what we're driving toward. Our heart must beat for the things that God heart, God's heart beats for. 
Those who know God must work hard to live a godly life. And we supply these things in faith so that God's character can be seen here on this earth. God is primarily made known to people through the way his God's people live and interact on this earth. Jesus says this, they will know you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. So we're to love one another well within the church. We're to bear with one another. We're to forgive one another. We're not to carry grudges. We're to speak the truth in love and to work through the difficult things. Receiving forgiveness from Christ and extending that same forgiveness to one another in Christ. And that will be a mystery to the world. They won't understand it. And they'll ask you about it. And that becomes an opportunity for you to bear witness of who Christ is. And again, to live out a godly character before them so that they can see a glimpse of who God is on this earth. A godly life is one that clearly displays God's character. So that's what a godly life is. Second question I want us to explore is, how do I live a godly life? What does it mean to live a godly life? How how do I practically do that here on this earth? And Peter instructs us to do that too. He gives us some clear uh, direction on that. Look again at verse 5. He says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. This is hard work. Hard work is required. Adding these things to our faith or allowing our faith to result in these things is hard work. And what we're not talking about here is works righteousness. Did you remember as we read through that list, does that sound familiar? Let me read that list in quick succession again and you let me know if you've heard this list or something like it before. Virtue or moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. What does that remind you of? Fruits of the Spirit, right? Yeah, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, right? These are only things, as I've said before, that can only flow from faith because they are fruit that is born by the Holy Spirit. And yet, even though it is the power of the Spirit that allows this fruit to be born in our lives, it requires human effort. We're talking again about this divine partnership where we, according to Peter here, we make every effort. Or, as the NASB would have it translated, we apply all diligence. Applying all diligence, supply in your faith these things. Peter's not alone. Paul talks about this too. He says this to the Philippian church in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you hear the partnership there? We're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. That's human effort. Human effort is required. And yet it is God who is at work within us to will and to work according to his good pleasure. He also says this in Ephesians 2, verse 10. Paul writes, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So these works that we are to be working hard at as Christians in order to live a godly life are not the means by which we earn our righteousness. That was earned by Jesus' blood. And Peter is clear to remind us of that. Look again at verse 1. Peter's writing to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So this grace in which we stand was won for us by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's an alien righteousness that is imputed to us on the basis of faith. So these works are not what earns God's favor, but there are some religions that would have you think that. Some religions say that the mathematical equation of justification by faith goes like this. Faith plus works 
equals righteousness. Faith isn't enough in those instances. You must add works in order to be righteous. But that is not the biblical definition of justification by faith. That mathematical equation goes like this. Righteousness, nope, let me try that again. Faith equals righteousness plus works. Faith equals righteousness plus works. A true faith is a faith that works. James says, you show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Because a faith that doesn't work isn't faith at all. It's dead, James says. So true faith, true knowledge of God, knowing God through faith in Jesus Christ and knowing God through an understanding of his promises will turn out in works, in good works. It will produce the fruit of good works. And these good works require human effort. So Peter says we're to make every effort. So why is so much effort required? Why does it require human effort? If we stand in grace, if we're declared righteous through faith in Christ, by God's grace, why is human effort required? Significant effort is required to escape the corruption that is in the world because of our sinful desires. These sinful desires, if you think back to when you were saved, these sinful desires for most of us didn't just vanish at the point of regeneration, right? That becomes something that our eyes were awakened to slowly over time and that by God's grace, as we walk day by day, we become increasingly free from that. The grace of God breaks the penalty of sin. There's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the grace of God breaks the power of sin. So we are no longer held as slaves to sin when we're in Christ, but we're freed to live in freedom from them as bondservants of Jesus Christ, where we follow hard after Him, where we make every effort to live a life that imitates and displays His character on this earth. Significant effort is required because the standard after which we strive is holiness. Look with me at verse 8, 2 Peter 1, verse 8. Peter says this, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If these qualities are yours, in other words, if you possess them, if they're abiding in you, but that's not enough. It's not enough that we show knowledge one time. It's not enough that we uh, display moral excellence one time or twice. It's not enough that we have brotherly affection for one another once or twice or once or twice a week. He says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, the standard is, is holiness. Perfect holiness. So these qualities must be ours, but they must be increasing. We can never then on this earth be satisfied with where we are in our display of these godly qualities. We can never say that we have arrived. We must always be striving on toward increased holiness. And Peter will say this at the close of this letter. He will say, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For the Christian, living a godly life is something that you don't attain on this earth until Jesus comes back. The good news is this. He who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. But between now and then, much human effort is required. And I want you to feel the weight of that. I want you to feel the divine obligation to live a godly life because it requires human effort. You can't just sit back, let go, and let God and expect to live a faithful life. That's not biblical. On the other side of that, you cannot, by your human effort, display these things in your own power because these character qualities can only be produced by divine power, the Holy Spirit working these things out through you. So I want you to live in the tension of that Feel the obligation to make every human effort and feel the provision of God to empower you to make every human effort. 
He'll make it effective. So what does it look like then to make every human effort? Can you think of biblical examples where people that are recorded in the scriptures have actually done this sort of thing in a way that can help us grasp what it means to live by faith but to make every human effort? When I think about that, I think of Joseph in Genesis 39. If you remember the story, Joseph's brothers sold him into slave traders who took him down to Egypt, right? And he eventually finds himself as the chief steward of Potiphar's house. Everything in Potiphar's household was entrusted to Joseph, and he was the steward of it. What he said went. What he sold was sold. What he bought was, was purchased. And the way that that house was run was under Joseph's control. The only thing that Potiphar had withheld from him, obviously, was his wife, which was just and right. But Potiphar's wife had a wandering eye, and she thought Joseph looked pretty good. And she seized him one day by the garment and said, lie with me. My master's away. And do you remember what Joseph did? He ran. He made every human effort. But he did so saying this. He says, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? Joseph recognized that sexual sin wasn't just something that was contained neatly in the package of his little body, but it was actually a sin against God. And he stewarded that knowledge by exercising self-control, godliness, and love. What he did by fleeing that day was ultimately a very loving thing for his master, Potiphar. So Joseph, by his faith, recognized that that was a sin that he needed to flee from, and he made every human effort then to add these things, self-control, godliness, and love to his faith, and the human effort looked like him fleeing, leaving his garment behind. He literally left the coat in her hands as she grasped him. That's what making every human effort looks like. Brothers and sisters, do we make every human effort in, in a way like that to flee sin? When something comes on the television that you know you probably shouldn't be watching, what do you do? Do you walk up and get out of the room? Do you shut the TV off? Do you change the channel? Or do you sit there and watch it thinking, oh, it'll pass? We need to make every human effort to live a godly life. You can also think about Moses. It's recorded in Hebrews 11.24. Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Moses didn't want to live a lie. That would have been comfortable for him. It would have been easy for him, so to speak. But he recognized and he stood up for the truth. He identified himself with the people of God even though that it meant that he would be mistreated, ill-treated. So faith, in that way, through human effort, he added steadfastness to his faith. And in the midst of the ill treatment, in the midst of the abuse, he stood fast and he held on to his integrity. You see, in both these cases, faith was at work. And the power in which they stood and held their ground, the power in which they added these things or displayed these things through their faith was divine power in action. Question three about a godly life. How do I live a godly life? He tells us this in verse nine. Peter says in verse nine, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. There's a direct correlation here between forgetting your purification from your former sins and unfruitfulness. So how do I live a godly life? I remember the grace that I've received. Jesse had us remember the day we were saved, what life was like prior to coming to Christ. For some of us, that was easier than others. But we need to look back and recall what our lives were like prior to trusting Christ. And if that happened so early that, that um, you might need to, as Jesse said, imagine what that could have been like. And all you have to do is look around and see the wreck that people's lives are today who are apart from Christ and what redemption looks like. So we are to remember the grace that we received. Peter says that those who forget don't display these qualities. We're unfruitful. 
when we forget the grace that we have received in Christ. So then the inverse must also be true. That if we remember, if we are diligent to look back and remember the grace that we have received in Christ, that will lead us toward being able to display these qualities, being able to be fruitful in the knowledge of God. This is why it's so important that within the church we tell our testimonies. It's one of the things I love about baptisms because the person who is baptized stands before us and gives a a testimony, explains what their life was like before they came to faith in Christ, explains what it looked like for them when they expressed saving faith in Christ, and then gives a testimony about what their life is like now differently in Christ than it was before. These testimonies are something that we need to explain to one another because when you tell me your testimony, my faith is strengthened. And when you are in the process of thinking back and recalling the grace that you've received in order to tell your testimony, your faith is strengthened as you remember what life was like and as you remember how gracious God has been to you. So as we move forward as a church, let's be a, let's be a people who regularly tell our testimonies to one another. And it, it can be your salvation testimony. It can be of a trial that you went through last week and how you got, saw God show up and be faithful to you. We can testify to these things in a way that, that helps us display these character, godly character qualities. When was the last time you gave your testimony? Can you remember? Testimony is a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing within the church and it's also a powerful witnessing tool outside the church. Take some time to think through your testimony. Take some time to record it, to remember it. Allow your faith to be strengthened and then steward that as God gives you opportunity. Because when your faith is strengthened, you're motivated to live a godly life. So as you look at this list, as you see the items that Peter wants our faith to display, how are you doing at living a godly life? Do you find these qualities being regularly displayed in your life? Do you find some of them being displayed more regularly than others? Do you find that some on this list are just really hard to come by? I sure do. So let's get practical then. Assuming that you all are nodding and saying, yeah, I have a hard time bearing some of this fruit in my life. How do we do this? What does Peter instruct us to do in order to make every human effort to bear this kind of fruit, to live a godly life that displays clearly God's character on this earth? So let's get really practical. How do we do this? Well, we're going to look at Peter's playbook for growing in godliness. He's got a simple playbook. There's only three plays in the book, okay? First, we remember the grace that we've received. We just talked about this. So think and pray and rejoice at the grace that you have received. And if in this process you think about receiving grace and you can't recall a time that you've actually received grace from God, you can't recall a time where you have personally trusted Him, today can be the day of salvation for you. Receive his grace today. He's offering it to each one of us. Some for the first time. All of us today. Receive his grace and remember it. The next play in his book is remember God's precious and very great promises. Remember those things that he's promised that he's told you are true about Jesus Promises like this, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Jesus is a sympathetic high priest who's been tempted in every way such as you and I have, yet without fail. And he stands ready to give help and mercy to those who ask him in their time of need. Jesus, yes, is coming one day to judge the living and the dead. But he's our sympathetic high priest. This is a promise. And if you are in Christ, Jesus stands ready to extend grace and mercy to you. Remember promises like this. The Spirit indwells you and empowers you to live a godly life. Because these things, these character qualities can only be displayed by God's divine power. Remember a promise like this. In the Lord, your labor is not in vain. 
Some of us know besetting sins that seem to haunt us day after day after day. And it feels like finding the fruit of freedom from that sin is hard. Or it seems like we are striving after some sort of faithful or fruitful ministry and that seems to elude us. It feels like the harder we work at this, the less fruit is born. Remember this prophet promise. Your labor in the Lord is never in vain. Someday it will bear fruit. Remember this promise. He who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. As you strive toward holiness and it feels like you are having fits and starts, this trajectory of, of an ever upward spiral toward holiness feels like it has jagged edges in it. Rest in the promise that he will be faithful to complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. Rest in this promise. The work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. These good works that you are striving after in order to display God's character in this world that comes at the cost of much human effort will become the basis upon your eternal reward. You will be rewarded for your effort. Remember this promise. A day is coming when Jesus will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain, for the former things have passed away. Revelation 21.4 And then remember this. In the trial of your temptation, as you're seeking to display God's character, but finding it hard or you're finding it tempting not to do that, remember this. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But will be with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. God will never allow you to be tempted beyond your capacity to resist. And he will provide a way of escape through his divine power, the ministry of the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Step one, remember the grace that we've received. Step two, Remember the great and precious promises. Step three, make every human effort to live a godly life, knowing that God will empower your success. Human effort is required to live a godly life, but only God can empower the success. So we need to rest in this divine partnership. That's how we can live a godly life. So why? Why should I be motivated to live a godly life? Peter is saying here that those who know God must work hard to live a godly life. But why? There are two things that motivate us to live a godly life. One is God's provision, and the second is God's purpose. Let's look first at God's provision. Verse 5 starts in this way. For this very reason, make every effort then to supplement your faith with these things. For which reason? He's referring to verse 3, that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Everything that's necessary for life and godliness has been provided for you through Christ. That's His provision. He has already, if you are in Christ, made you alive together with Christ through faith. And he didn't overlook your sin, but he sent Jesus as your substitute to die on the cross to make full payment for that sin. And his justice was satisfied with the precious blood of Christ. So that now the sin that is yours, that portion of your sin that held Jesus on the cross, has been forgiven. And Jesus drank to the dregs the cup of God's wrath against your sin. That has been supplied for you. That is God's provision for you. So that now you are no longer a slave to sin, but you're freed to be a bondservant to Christ. Dr. Sosia Talbot years ago told me this. God has never promised his people freedom from servitude. He's only promised to, give us, to free us from a master that leads to death and to give us a master who leads to life. Those who know God must work hard 
to live a godly life because we have a master who leads us to life. He's making every provision that's necessary for life and godliness for us to do that. And when he has laid down his all to purchase freedom from sin, sin's penalty and sin's power for us, how can we withhold anything but every effort in order to live a godly life? It just doesn't make sense. We have someone who has not counted equality with God, something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being found in very nature a man, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that you and I might not have to bear the penalty for our sin. That's God's lavish provision for us to motivate us to live a godly life. Secondly, for God's purpose. Verse 5 also points back when he says, for this very reason, he points back to what Peter has already written in verse 4. He says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. This is God's purpose for us. We are to become partakers of the divine nature. Our heart is to beat for the things that God's heart beats for. God wants us to partake in and display his nature in the world. Verse 8, again, we will look at. It says this, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's possible then to have a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ that is unfruitful, that is ineffective. And it's Peter's burden that that not be the case for us. It was Peter's burden that that not be the case for the folks he's writing to here. Living a godly life keeps you from being unfruitful. That's why we're to make every effort to do that. We're to, in faith, add these things to our faith or allow our faith to express itself in these ways that imitates God's character and displays his moral excellence on this earth. God has a purpose for us. That's to participate, partake of the divine nature. That means we join him in his purpose on this earth, which is this. Second Peter will explain that to us in 3 verse 9, where it says, he's, he's not slow, but he's patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is calling people to repentance in this world so that he is redeeming a people unto himself and he wants us to participate with him in that purpose. In his wisdom, he uses his people, the people that know him, to be proclaimers of his excellencies. Which is why Paul can say this in Colossians 1, 29. Let me read that for us. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Beginning at verse 28. Paul says, Him we proclaim, that's Jesus, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal. For this I toil, human effort, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. There's a divine partnership again as Paul dis makes every effort, humanly speaking, to make disciples on this earth. And that's what God has for us. I have a citrus tree in my backyard. It's a tree that was there when we bought the house three years ago. And the first couple of years, it bore some very, very sweet fruit. I think it's a, uh, like a mandarin orange. It's a small little orange with seeds, but they're so sweet. And it's, it's been a joy having that tree in my backyard. But this year, I look at it, it didn't flower. There's, there's not one orange on the tree. It's fruitless. Why is that? The leaves are green. It appears to be alive. I don't know. I have some suspicions. I haven't been very diligent I have not made every effort to water it. I haven't given it a lick of fertilizer. So it's probably missing some things, right? These things that Peter is saying we're to add to our faith or supplement our faith. I haven't supplemented that tree with what it needs in order to be fruitful. 
but it still has the appearance of life. There's a green leaf, lots of green leaves on it, but there won't be any fruit this fall. And the Christian life can be kind of like that. If we neglect our responsibility to live a godly life, we can have a knowledge of God that doesn't bear fruit. We can have a knowledge of God that's ineffective, and that's not what God has for us, people. God calls us to steward our knowledge of him in a way by making every effort to live a godly life. So how are we doing? How are we doing as individuals at living a godly life? How are we doing as small groups or grace groups at living a godly life with one another? How are we doing as a congregation here at living a godly life? Displaying this list of character qualities that displays God's character on this earth. That stewards our lives so that others are built up, so that fruit is born to the glory of God. How are we doing? Let's take a couple of minutes just to examine our hearts. I'll pray for us, and then Jesse will come up and lead us in a closing song. Lord, it's clear that that you call us, you, you obligate us to work hard to live godly lives. And we feel the weight of that. It's also clear that you are the one who provides the divine power in order to make that happen. And we thank you for that. Lord, to the degree that we have not made every effort, will you please forgive us? And to the degree that we are making more human effort than we should as a means of trying to earn your favor or trying to earn righteousness, forgive us. Would you please free us to think rightly about these things? Would you please remind us of the grace that is ours in Christ? And would you please help us to steward that knowledge of of him and his precious promises in a way that bears fruit? For you've told us that when we bear fruit, we glorify you. Lord, we want to glorify you. You've given everything to purchase our salvation. We want to give everything back in order to advance your plans and your purposes on this world. I pray that you'd empower that to happen for this congregation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.